You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. How's everyone doing? This is your host, Matt, and it brings me great sadness to report that friend of the podcast, Dr. Mark Witten, has passed away. Mark has been a longtime supporter of Indefensive Plants, and I honestly don't think I'd be where I am today or have made the connections I've made today without his influence. But most importantly, Mark was a dear friend and my mentor. He was an incredible botanist, and his contributions to the world of floral chemistry and orchid pollination are unmeasurable. His untimely departure has left a hole not only in my heart, but the hearts of everyone who has ever had the pleasure of working with him. You've heard him on the podcast plenty of times in the past. In fact, if you want to go back and hear some of our adventures together, you can hear him on episodes 60, 91, 93, and 156. But I know Mark, and he wouldn't want this to be a shadow that overcasts the great messages that are going to be in today's episode. So today is all about honoring Mark Witten, and I can't think of a better way to do that than to celebrate the conservation and preservation of Florida's native plants. And that's exactly what today's episode is all about. Joining us today is Juliet Reiner, Executive Director of the Florida Native Plant Society, and she's going to talk to us all about the monumental efforts being put forward to protect Florida's floristic diversity. They're doing incredible work, and the Florida Native Plant Society should serve as a model for all plant societies across the globe. They also want to remind you that they have a conference coming up in Crystal River. More information can be found on the links in the show notes for this episode. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Juliet Reiner. I hope you enjoy. All right, um, ready when you are. Okay. Well, my name is Juliet Reiner. I'm the executive director of the Florida Native Plant Society, and I've been working in plant conservation for about uh, 15 years now. Even before that, I was always a always a plant geek and always <laughs> working to restore and conserve our our natural lands and our and our plant communities. Well, that's really exciting to hear, and and I, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, very curious about the work you guys are doing down there, but I'm. I'm wondering what really brought you to plants in the first place. You said you were always a plant geek, but was there ever a moment or a time in your life where you realized it and and really just jumped in full on? I think it must just be, you know, family roots, because on on my father's side of the family, everybody was farmers. And on my mother's side of the family, there were both farmers and ranchers. So we always had that connection to the land. Very nice. And, and that just kind of bred this understanding and appreciation for the fact that really kind of plants are at the root of it all, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if um, it was just all part of the whole. Um, yeah. And then I guess I just as I got older, I just became more and more entranced by plants. And I don't know, it's just <laughs> it was just a natural natural progression. Right on. And did you grow up in Florida? I mean, is the Florida native plant community really the backdrop to this obsession? Or did you kind of move around and appreciate other floras before kind of settling down uh, in the Florida area? I have moved around. So I've lived all over the United States and um, 
a lot of my mother's relatives uh, were ranchers in Baja, California. So we spent some time down there too. So, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of plant communities in a lot of different um, environments, you know, from the desert to um, wetlands to now here I am in Florida. And I moved here in 2008. Before that, I was on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So different, but similar in some ways. Right, right. And in thinking about Florida and how my perception of that place has changed, I grew up doing the Disneyland stuff, doing the really touristy uh, human society <laughs> stuff. But, right. uh, you know, now that I've kind of flipped, I enjoy more hiking vacations. I like going to look for plants. I've really come to appreciate Florida's natural Florida. I'm wondering in moving around and seeing what other places in the world are doing, at least here in the continental United States, do you think that's kind of shaped the way you look at the way Florida manages its its natural areas? You kind of touched on how conservation and restoration are at the forefront of your mind most of the time. How does that shape what you view in terms of what's going on with Florida's natural lands? So the one thing that really jumps out is that we have an excellent prescribed fire program in Florida. And I say program in the you know big overall sense. Prescribed fire has become the norm here in Florida for managing our fire-adapted ecosystems. And so compare that to places like California, which I also lived out in California for a while. Um, they're having real issues with trying to get prescribed fire on the landscape. And, you know, there are also fire-adapted communities there. And we see the results of fuel buildup and we see, you know, the conflicts between the urban area and our natural areas and how dangerous that can be when fuel builds up and is not managed with fire. So Florida has made great strides in that in that area. It wasn't always so. Like most of the United States, we went through, you know, a long period of fire suppression where that was considered, you know, beneficial and sure. then came to learn that that was actually the opposite was true. So our land managers, you know, inherited a lot of very fire suppressed um, natural lands, and they have made amazing, amazing progress in getting fire on the landscape. Yeah, that's one thing I really appreciate in following Florida Native Plant Society uh, social media outlets on, on multiple platforms is just the not only the embracing of the use of fire as a tool for restoration, but also the way you kind of integrate it into the community. I mean, it's not like you're just doing this and saying, all right, everyone look out. It, it seems to be more part of like just the culture in general, not just agency culture per se. You know, the, the neighbors, the landowners, the stakeholders seem to be embracing it just as much as the agencies are. Well, yes, the, the agencies have had to reach out to, especially to landowners who border the natural areas, because you can't just burn and, and not tell anyone. So part of the prescription is that you reach out to those landowners who share your boundaries and you let them know, hey, we're going to be doing a, a prescribed fire, or at least, you know, we're going to be trying to do a prescribed fire on a certain date. But if the com conditions don't on the ground don't meet the prescription, then, you know, you can't burn. But so that's why those prescriptions are so very important. Certainly, yeah. So landowner outreach is a huge part of it. Public education is a huge part of it. And I guess the biggest challenge really is that we have so many people moving into Florida from other parts of the country where this is not the norm. And, you know, so education is always, always important. Wow. Yeah, I actually had not thought about it in that context, at least. It's one thing to grow up and be used to this sort of stuff. But if you're someone moving down there from, say, New York State, where I'm from, where fire really isn't a, a normal part of the management decisions being made, that has to be pretty alarming, especially if you just bought a house <laughs> that abuts 
exactly. uh, a natural area. Mm-hmm. And people have other concerns too, health concerns. So, you know, you're worried about smoke, you know, if, if somebody has asthma, how am I going to be affected? And the reality is that prescribed fires are so much safer than, for example, we see a lot of burning in this state. Developers burn, they bulldoze natural areas and they then they burn to clear the area before development. And those fires take place without a prescription. They're permitted, but ironically, the, the smoke is allowed to cover interstate highways. It's allowed to go oh. into neighborhoods. Often the, the wind speed is like 20 to 40 miles an hour. And, you know, it's just filling neighborhoods. And <laughs> But Jeez. prescribed fires are exactly the opposite. Um, you only burn under specific conditions. And if you're surrounded by development, that becomes a huge concern because you don't want smoke to go into neighborhoods. So if conditions change and you start to see smoke going into areas, you know, neighborhoods and whatnot, then you, you know, you shut the fire down. Right. And and having participated in some prairie burns around here, just I'm always amazed at the proper and, and degree of thoroughness that goes into planning and ensuring that these sorts of things don't get out of hand and harm people living or organisms living in and around the area. But this is kind of a theme lately on the podcast is that there is this disconnect between what people picture as, say, a wildfire or even just someone burning wantonly uh, without any regard for what's going on around them, and then these actual prescribed burns. And that's a big part of the education process, I would assume, is just getting people's heads wrapped around this idea that a prescribed burn is really there to help on a lot of these avenues. It's not just there to restore, say, plant diversity. It's keeping those fuel loads down. It's keeping things that they're not going to create tons of smoke when it finally does burn, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And there's some amazing photographs out there, satellite imagery, where a wildfire started near a neighborhood. And interestingly enough, so you could see where it burned and, and almost like burned down a neighborhood. And where it didn't burn was a nearby natural area that had been well managed with fire. And so the fuel load was so low that, you know, the fire hit it and it just went out. So, so there's <laughs> really some interesting imagery out there to prove the point, too. Wow. You are literally fighting fire with fire. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's incredible. An area that's been fire suppressed for decades now, a lot of times they're closed canopy and there's a lot of leaf litter on the ground, which under normal conditions would suppress fire. But when you have like super dry conditions, which we do get from time to time, mm. um, some of our dry seasons are drier than, than normal. And when that leaf litter dries out, then, then conditions are right for a catastrophic wildfire. And those are really hard to put out. And those are the ones that endanger, you know, local communities. Right, right. And that's always, again, part of that goal is to ensure that when those stochastic events creep up, they're not as damaging. Yes, exactly. So in thinking about this, you mentioned the, the one big fact about Florida that I think a lot of people uh, eventually come to realize is that this is a state that attracts people. There is constantly people moving there. Your population is growing. And it's a peninsula. You know, there's only so much land area to support people. And, and that comes at the expense way too often of really high quality, high biodiversity natural lands, right? I mean, is that really not kind of the central focus of the Florida Native Plant Society is to try to ensure that this gets protected as much as possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, a lot of pressure on, uh, especially upland communities, 
because that's that's where you want to build your roads. That's where you want to build your homes and your you know businesses because they're not going to flood. So <laughs> right. we also have a lot of wetlands in Florida. It's geographically speaking, it's really diverse. And that's another thing that a lot of people who like move from the mountains don't really see because because they're they're thinking about Rocky Mountains, you know, huge changes in elevation. Whereas in Florida, subtle changes in elevation, even changes of like six inches can create dramatic changes across the landscape in the plant communities. So it's a fascinating place to to live and to study. Yeah, I think we we tend to paint this picture, as you so clearly uh, mentioned here, is that the places worth protecting are those that make the most stunning vistas on, say, a Bob Ross painting. But I think, again, <laughs> this idea of like microtopography offering refugia and areas for plants to go diverse, I, I can't think of a place in North America that you know, other than places like maybe Baja, which happen to also be peninsulas, where you do get this insane amount of diversity over such a short geographic area. And and just trying to wrap your head around that can kind of be daunting for the average person. I mean, there's a lot of native plant diversity in Florida, is there? Is there not? Exactly. And for exactly the reasons you just you just mentioned, elevation changes, hydrology changes, soil types, just the biogeography is is the reason for a lot of the plant diversity. And so you, we have a, a high rate of endemic species in this state. They occur in this state and nowhere else in the world. And that's, you know, partly the reason. Plus, when sea level was much higher, a lot of peninsula of Florida was just a series of islands. And so you had these isolated islands where these communities of species evolved together over millions of years. So the, there's often confusion about, you know, Florida native plant species. Well, plants are and species aren't really native to Florida. They're native to whatever part of Florida they evolved in. <laughs> so we do see a, a broad range of just looking at plant species, a broad range of species in, in the same genus throughout Florida. Um, and that's um, that's part of what makes this so interesting is that no matter where you go in the state, you're going to see something different. Wow, that is amazing. I never really thought about it in that way that you hear about a sea level you know, was X amount of hundreds of feet higher. I always thought, okay, except for that mid ridge, Florida was completely underwater. But the fact that it was operating as another chain of islands down near the Caribbean, that makes all of that endemism make so much more sense to me. And and oh, I don't yeah. know how many people truly kind of grasp that as a concept. That's That's an incredible factoid to get your head wrapped around. Yeah, and there, there's some great resources on the internet. Where pe- but we have wonderful mapping resources in the state, too. And you can look and you can see the different scenarios of what Florida looked like, you know, a million years ago, two million years ago. And it's just the changes in sea level rise alone really illustrate the, the issue. And you look at, um, so like Miami, Pine Rocklands, for example, that you know, where all the development is in Miami, that's all the high ground. That's a, that was an island. Mm. So yeah, we have lots of islands and island biogeography in this state. <laughs> I love it. Wow. So, okay. In thinking about this, you mentioned that the, the upland areas, the high ground, so to speak, are the areas where development happens the fastest. And I really, you know, there, there's, this is everywhere in the United States, wherever development is happening, that's usually at the expense of natural things. Uh, and, and especially when you start thinking of small populations of rare and endemic species, that, that brings up huge conservation issues. So I'm curious, 
this mission that the Florida Native Plant Society has to kind of preserve what's left, what does that look like? How are you approaching this 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 conundrum of fighting, not fighting against development, but making sure that some of it's maintained in the process and not getting completely bulldozed over? Well, so preserving land and conserving species takes a village. So we do a lot of partnering. Um, last week, I you know was just in another fantastic working group meeting. Um, you know, you have to reach across and involve all stakeholders. So that's an important part of our mission is partnerships and working with partners. And some of those partners are land developers, you know, private landowners who, you know, some of them want to conserve some of their lands and some of them don't. But, you know, we have a policy that as a last result, I mean, our first our first desire is to preserve these intact habitats that remain. And there aren't that many really outside the protected areas. Mm. So it's it's becoming increasingly urgent as development ramps up in Florida and it becomes more and more urbanized. So if we can't preserve pieces of land through conservation easements or through outright purchase, then then we go into rescue mode when development is imminent and assured. And uh, there's been a number of developers we've worked with throughout the state. Sometimes, you know, if, if they know that they're not going to develop for five years, for example, we will request permission to collect seeds and cuttings and propagate plants for restoration on protected natural lands. Oh, and wow. so that's that's been a really important partnership throughout the state. And then when development is coming and it's imminent, uh, then we go into rescue mode and rescue everything that we can, which means actually digging plants up. And then uh, we have, we partner with the Florida Association of Native Nurseries, and um, they provide nursery space to harden off the plants until we can get them out into a protected location. So obvious partners are like the Florida Park Service and the water management districts, anybody who has land that they're managing and doing active restoration on, we help with that because we have all this plant material that we've collected or or rescued. Wow, that's an, a nice to see sort of this portfolio of strategies and, and sort of last ditch efforts as well as trying to work with people ahead of time to put some things aside. And, and that's really encouraging because I think all too often, especially with social media, we get into these little bins where it's black and white. It's we're either for it or we're against it and we can't work with it. And and it does take a village. Like you said, you can't do something in the community without involving the community. And for better or for worse, you know, public lands and natural lands are part of this this communal living space that we've decided to call our own. And so I'm wondering how that mission kind of has evolved. It it seems like you have to almost invest more in thinking about how human minds work and, and trying to work with businesses. And you have to be savvy on a lot of levels that aren't just ecology and botany, right? I mean, this is something you have to bring a lot of people to the table with. Yeah, you really just hit the nail on the head. Because to pursue our mission, well, I think we realized from pretty early on that it, it would be the broad scale approach in addition to focusing you know, narrowly on, on rare plant communities. So the broad scale approach means you need to reach out to elected representatives. You need to work with elected representatives and developers and everybody who has a hand in making policy that affects what we preserve and what we don't. And it basically, it boils down to a quality of life issue. So we know Floridians want natural areas. We know that they support our, our park system, which is one of the best in the country. 
So we know we want that that the citizens want this, but then you know you also need to get in your car and drive to work, or go to the store, or you know go on vacation. So hmm. how you plan infrastructure while also preserving you know what you need to maintain your quality of life, and that includes water resources, which you know we have. Most of our water comes from the Florida aquifer, mm. and so recharge is hugely important. Um, springs management and protection is hugely important. So, uh, yeah, you probably know we have a lot, a lot of water <laughs> issues in Florida. Yeah. You know, red tide was absolutely horrible last year. Oof. I mean, you couldn't fish, you couldn't go into the beaches. It was affecting all kinds of businesses in Florida. So, I think. That was a huge wake-up call to people who hadn't really realized the connection between conservation, good planning, and uh, their quality of life and their and their ability to make a living. So it's all connected. Yeah, and that's what I really like hearing of you know, and just hearing the way that you're you're talking about this. It's it's so much more nuanced. And it, it's really this appreciation of those different viewpoints and how to sell this. We could sit here for hours and talk about how great native plants are and supporting native insect communities. But the sad truth of it is, for so many people, that is not a top priority. And and that's not a value judgment. It's just the reality. Like you said, people are sometimes way more concerned with their bottom line and how they're going to get through the week and feed their kids than they are necessarily about what kind of insects are in their backyard. So understanding those issues and being able to speak to them in the context of land preservation, like you said, water preservation, one of the biggest things people need is fresh water. Uh, that that speaks so much more loudly, I think, to the general populace that would oftentimes not even care if native plants were part of this mission or not. Right. And there have been a couple of things, you know, water, obviously, but also the pollinator crisis. Mm. So that's another thing that you know, people start to really see the connections to their food supply, to their their water, their quality of life. Once people start understanding the connections, then it becomes real in a way that it never was before. So it's a lot harder to dismiss conservation planning when you understand that it is connected to your life and your quality of life. So people, I'm seeing really, really broad support now for, you know, saving our pollinators and providing pollinator habitat. And a lot of people are really, really on board with providing native plants for our native pollinators in their yards, in public landscaping projects. So it's becoming more and more normal, shall we say. We're (laughs) still not there yet, but it's becoming much more broadly accepted than it was maybe 10 years ago. Well, I mean, that's that's part of this process in any sort of free democratic society. It's going to happen in steps first. It doesn't all happen at once. But just hearing that it's part of the conversation has got to be encouraging. And I think what is really cool is this idea of plant rescue. Obviously, this is a last ditch effort. This is something where you said, you know, development is imminent. It's not like, oh, you can destroy this as long as we can go and get the plants sort of thing. Right. But to think that there's an integration there with nurseries and, and putting these into parks that some of this genetic diversity of, of the unique plant communities are being saved. And, and I think that all kind of bleeds into this idea of, okay, we can connect this idea to pollinators and, and crops. You know, There's so much citrus, for instance, down there. It, it makes a lot more sense than just, again, hey, here's a bunch of native plants, they're pretty. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, so we rescue what we can, 
in order to preserve as much genetic diversity as we can, but realizing the whole time that, you know, the seed banks that are present at these sites where we're rescuing were developed over millions of years. So, you know, the ideal thing would be to just scoop it all up like (laughs) from 10 feet down and, and move it, you know, (laughs) of course that can't be done, but uh, you know, we do our best. Right. And, and in hopes that, you know, there's always the potential that maybe they don't want to develop all of their land or something like that, you know, but Mm -hmm. in thinking about what it takes to go in and do these plant rescues in such a diverse area, it just seems kind of overwhelming to me to think about what do you prioritize? I mean, do you go in with a plan? Do you kind of say, we're going to go in with as many people that show up and see what we can get done? I mean, what what are you aiming for in these sorts of plant rescue missions? So in in an ideal scenario, we've had a a relationship with the landowner for, you know, more than a year. That's ideal because you can go in, you can do a really good survey of the site and know it's there. Although a lot of plants senesce, meaning they disappear for a season or sometimes for years. Milkweeds are known to just disappear above ground for years um, and then, you know, pop back to life again because they have these huge, deep tap roots. Right. A lot of them. So getting a good survey, knowing what's there, is it one plant community? Is it a number of plant communities? And, you know, the, the, the goal is to rescue entire populations of every plant community on site. So obviously that takes time. So the best case scenario is that you have at least a few years. If not, then you're just going in and, I mean, you survey the site, you see what plant communities are present. So you have a good idea of what to expect to find. Right. So we'll go in with a baseline plant list of maybe 150 plants that are likely to occur there, for example, and just get what we can, try to get as much of a population across the entire site as, as we can of each of the species that we find. Yeah, and the idea that coming back to the genetic element of it, that you're doing as much as you possibly can to preserve at least some of that genetic diversity, which probably varies from species to species and lineage to lineage, how successful mm-hmm. one can actually be at that. But right. in thinking about the way people view conservation, you know, people want to save the last of a species. But in thinking about resiliency, I mean, we're, we're heading into a really uncertain future here. Even if we stop doing what we do today, things are going to continue to change extremely rapidly. And thinking about resiliency on the landscape, I mean, that really does come down to genetic diversity because that gives all organisms the tool sets to deal with things and who knows where that hidden set of alleles is or something i'm probably oversimplifying it and the geneticists are cringing at me but that's (laughs) that's what's going to bolster plant communities and ecosystems really in the face of rapid changes to their environment yeah i think so you touched on the genetic aspect and that's really important for you know those plant populations to be able to adapt but there's also the community the importance of the community of species as well Mm. so that's why you know we do focus on getting as much of the plant community as as we can which means you know populations of all the species on site because the one thing I have observed in a lot of field work after hurricanes we have weird climate shifts in Florida anyway <laughs> so we see we see huge shifts in moisture in temperature yeah. bizarre you know events you know rainfall or drought or hurricanes so so we're used to seeing a, a lot of catastrophic type events in this state And what I have observed is your intact plant communities are even on small properties, which is kind of mind blowing and Hmm. blew against a lot of of previous research. Um, Even like a 20 acres intact site, 
much more resilient, I have observed, than partially degraded or degraded sites. So I think the community of species is really important too. So when you talk about diversity, you want genetic diversity in your populations and you want a diversity of species at the site. And I think that's what will make that community the most resilient over time. Wow. That's really refreshing to hear, actually, because so often it is these sort of poster child plants or organisms in general when you think of endangered species. And it's it's kind of that panda syndrome where we can produce hundreds and hundreds of pandas in captivity, but if they don't have an ecosystem to go back to, what have we really done? Uh, and to think about that in the context of native plants, you see all these lists like, oh, plant this species for the bees. And it's like, no, plant all of them, every yes. native plant, <laughs> as many as you possibly can. Don't pick your favorites. I mean, you can for obvious reasons, but Get as many of them as possible. That's a really good mission to try to drive home. And I'd imagine that can be sometimes difficult to communicate to people because, like you said, you can observe it. On one hand, you can read some of the literature, which can be contradictory. But we do know biodiversity matters on some level. We do. Yes, we do. And so I guess that kind of goes into this idea of workshops and, and people, you know, the education part of what you do, you have to kind of drive home that it's not about this rare orchid or just this rare orchid, I should say. It's about the community in which it lives and grows and all of the plants that are there, the, the, the microbial life they support, the insect communities mm-hmm. they support and, and all the way up the chain. But yeah, and that, you know, what's going on in the soil, you know, that we're, we can't even see with our eyes. There's just amazing networks of communication underground. Mm. So I guess if I had one big overarching hope for the human species is that more and more people would come to recognize that we are part of a much larger, much more complicated community than we realize. And I think I think we need to really understand and appreciate and respect that we're part of a community. And that's the only way that we're going to thrive and prosper going forward. We need to see ourselves as part of the community and how we fit in. For sure. And that I think something like the Florida Native Plant Society and your all of your chapters, I was actually just looking at a map this morning. I mean, you're you're so well situated and spread out across the state that you really do kind of work at a community level. And that's super important because I mean, just thinking about the biodiversity and how quickly things can change on that microtopography, you kind of need that to foster this idea of like, okay, what we have here is actually special and it's different from what's over here, which is also special, but this is our chapter and this is something that you can kind of have all those stakeholders come to the table and have some sort of investment or at least knowledge of what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Very important to have the local chapters. And some of them are named after plant species that are endemic to their county (laughs) where their chapter operates. They take those species under their wing and name their chapter out of them. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Uh, That's great. And in thinking about that from the community perspective and, and thinking about what you're doing in terms of restoration, and I really hope that in the coming decades, restoration is going to move to sort of the top of the list because we have to preserve what's left of these these intact natural areas. But we have so much more work to do in terms of trying to restore or put some of those pieces back together. So part of what the Florida Native Plant Society does at least in my understanding, is offer resources for these sort of monitoring projects and restoration projects on these pu- public lands, easement lands. What, what, what's going on with that? I mean, how does that kind of factor into the bigger mission? So, yeah, our volunteers across the state are involved in all kinds of um, monitoring and survey projects, not, not only for public lands, but for um, other nonprofit organizations and, and researchers who um, 
you know, don't have the staff they need to, to, you know, perform the monitoring that they need to. So yeah, our, our members have participated in all kinds of uh, <laughs> monitoring across the state. The state also has a great, great uh, volunteer program. And they, and we also have some really good friends groups throughout the state. You know, they're friends of our state parks and, and preserves. And so there's a lot, a lot of people in Florida doing some amazing volunteer work. So we're really happy to be a part of that because it's really helpful. You have to know if your management is working and, you know, are you protecting the resources that your management plan says you're supposed to be protecting? So, you know, that can only happen with really good, really good monitoring. Sure. And as as exciting as it is to put land aside and to try and set something back on the course to recovery is, is great. But like you said, if you're not ensuring that it's continuing how do you know the difference between say a native marshland or something like that versus one that's completely choked out by a brazilian pepper tree <laughs> right exactly yeah and that's another thing so you just touched on the non-native invasive species issue so <laughs> oh we have a lot of a lot of plants and animals and and even insects that that are not native to the state and um a lot of them are highly invasive and yeah, that's another huge management challenge. And it's it's mostly a challenge on lands that have been degraded. Uh, you you don't see nearly as much of a problem on in, in intact habitats. So that's, that again, why it's so important to us to save the last of those intact habitats, no matter what the size. So we're trying to fill those gaps as best we can. We've had a number of really fantastic land acquisition programs in Florida, the Carl program, P2000, and now Florida Forever. But it's been, you know, it was defunded for a number of years and, and now poorly funded mm. for the past few years. So we can't count on that. You know, we can't count on that state funding like we used to to, to buy these lands before it's too late. So so the, we're working with uh, land trusts in Florida to try to preserve what's left. And so we find ourselves uh, getting into the land purchasing business now <laughs> as a result. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, like you said, I mean, it does take a village. And this is all part of the community aspect of it is you have to participate in the community, whether that's uh, a good thing in your mind or a bad thing in your mind, you have to play the game because we're all here. We're all participating under the same umbrella that is, you know, the United States, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's nice to have this network and it is really encouraging to hear how much you know just volunteers factor into all of this and and that again gives back to this idea of building the community you're putting it in the onus and in, in sort of the, the hands of the people it's not just this group of people sitting in a boardroom making decisions it's really sending members of the community out to do things in their own community yes yes and the one thing about our members is they are just passionate so passionate about preserving our natural lands and protecting our plant species. And, and m most of them are members of other organizations too, because it, it's not just the plants, it's the birds and the reptiles and the bears and it, yeah. it's all of us. Yeah. Can you think of any uh, really highlights in your mind in terms of success stories for conservation of, of native plants and, and landscapes in Florida over the last couple of years that really stand out to you? You mean Big picture or things that, that we've done that I'm thrilled about? Uh, either or. Whatever really jumps to your mind as being important. I just like to inspire people with some good success stories. <laughs> oh, okay. well, I, I'm thrilled that we've had some amazing, the result of these relationships that we've had with developers, the result of which is that we've been able to 
uh, supply plants, whether they're grown from seeds that we've collected or plants that we've rescued. We've supplied tens of thousands of plants for restoration projects and actively worked with our partners on the restoration projects and, and monitoring them afterwards uh, on a number of sites throughout the state. And that is extremely rewarding to go back a year later, three years later, five years later, and to see, wow, here's a an entire plant community that we rescued, and now you're seeing it's the babies of the original plants wow. that you introduced, and you're and you're seeing so much progress on the landscape. That to me is just so hugely rewarding. Wow, that's I mean that just gave me a little like boost to the spirit, but that's that's got to feel so good, as you said, yes. just to just to see it take, and now yes. to go back and just see like, well, we disturbed the soil and it's all ruined. <laughs> Right, right. So, I mean, there's a, a number of things that um, lend themselves to success. The more healthy or, or intact uh, habitat is when you when you introduce, the better off you're going to be. So, an important part is working with our partners on the and these public lands and preserves um, to locate appropriate sites for restoration. And usually, they're sites that have been somewhat degraded, but they're they're actively managing the sites for invasive species and they're actively managing with fire. So that's always, that's always good. So they identify places for us. And so we provide the plants and we help plant and then monitor afterwards. And so that, that partnership, it's ongoing because they're, you know, nobody can just walk away from these natural lands. You have to actively manage in this state with fire. You've got to, you know, have a good invasive species program until you can get to the point where you can, I mean, I've seen sites that were just overrun with Kogan grass and over years, years and years and years, they <laughs> managed to get rid of it and introduce um, appropriate natives to the sites. And so I'm, I'm seeing the changes that our land managers are making across the state. And that's another thing that just really, really is satisfying because, you know, when we acquire lands in Florida, public lands, they're not always in pristine condition. Mm. Um, some of them have serious invasive is issues and some of them were former um, agricultural lands. <laughs> Those are really, really hard to restore. Yeah. That's a long term commitment. So it we had just amazing, amazing, dedicated land managers in the state on our public properties. And so a shout out to them, because without them, none of this could be. None of this would be successful. Uh, such a good perspective to bring into the, the thick of it here. But, I mean, it, it, it is a long-term thing, and it's something you have to work at, and communities are going to have to work at time and time again. But think about it. I mean, land is an investment. It is an investment in your future. It's the investment in the future of a community. And like any investment, you have to pay attention to it, right? You can't just sit back and let it ride unless you're already very, very fortunate. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, the it becomes more and more of something that you need to take care of as our population grows and as development development grows. These are properties that used to be connected in the landscape that frequently are not. And, you know, we're probably going to see increased isolation. So another thing that we'll need to do is we'll need to and we have the genetic resources now you know, to be able to do this is to to be able to monitor populations in isolated areas and introduce germplasm, genetic diversity over time as needed to make sure that the populations are, are robust and can, and can thrive wow. over time. 
I mean, it's just so encouraging to hear how thorough this is being considered. And that's that's what's really uplifting about everything you're doing down there is is just it's 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 not just good feelings. It's good feelings with a lot of science and a lot of understanding behind it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And and in thinking about getting people excited, I, I don't doubt we've inspired a few listeners, at least here. You all have a wonderful annual conference coming up, and it's a great time for people to kind of get their heads wrapped around what everything is, everything that's going on with the Florida Native Plant Society, is it not? Oh, it's what's going on with not just the Florida Native Plant Society and the work we're doing, but what all of our partners are doing and what, what researchers are doing across the state. Um, so it's a great time for everybody to get together, huge networking opportunity. And it's just a, a wonderful opportunity because we move across the state every year. Mm-hmm. So every year we're highlighting a different region of the state. And, you know, while a lot of the issues are the same, you know, things are always different because everybody has their own unique plant communities and they also have their own challenges that may be unique to them. So it's a great opportunity to travel the state and really, really see what's going on. And this year we'll be in uh, Crystal River, which is a coastal community on the nature coast of Florida, the west coast of Florida. And this is an area that is seeing the effects of sea level rise in dramatic and visible ways. And so a number of local communities have been forced to, as cities like Miami have been forced to, take a hard look at how they plan infrastructure and development going forward. And so green infrastructure is becoming more and more important. And where you build and where you don't build and um, how you protect your water resources, all these things are huge issues right now. We're just seeing the very beginning. And this is only going to get worse, even if we can um, go to zero carbon emissions yeah, you know, yeah. in 30 years we there's just enough um, there's just enough in this in the system already that we're going to be seeing the effects of climate change for a while so th- this conference is a really good opportunity the field trips some of the field trips are visiting these sites where you can see where hundreds and hundreds of acres of plant communities are either dying uh, or dramatically changing because of sea level rise and you'll be able to hear from local elected representatives to see, you know, how they're dealing with it. And then there'll be people talking about our springs and protection of our springs, which is hugely important for our water resources in Florida. And then we've got a track on ground cover restoration because that's a lot of what we do. And then we're also going to have a panel of um, people from our land trusts in Florida. We'll talk about the role of land trusts and in preserving, protecting land. And yeah, just tons of good stuff. Yeah. Tons of powerful stuff. I mean, just thinking about putting this out and and seeing it firsthand, you know, this isn't something you're reading about in a New York times article. This is reality and it's reality for a community that's having to deal with it now and not 20 years from now. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, that is, that is powerful. And the fact is, is that, you know, where we are now, our conferences from from now on, um, well, we we also we also had a lot of climate change uh, discussion and planning discussions at our last conference and the conference before that. <laughs> so I think this is just going to be this is the new normal. Yeah, this is going to be part of the discussion, you know, for a long time. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's so important to have this concentrated sort of education and outreach event. So this is something that's open to the public. I mean, anyone can sign up and, and go to this. Yes, you can register on our website 
at www.fmps.org. And the registration is right there. And um, you can do all that online or you can call up the registration and register over the phone. But online is easiest. Perfect. I will put up links to that so people can go directly to it. Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful. So in thinking about all of your time spent in Florida and all of the attention given to Florida native plants, do you have a handful of favorites that stand out? I realize that can be a difficult question for a lot of people, but <laughs> or maybe a community that you like a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I can't discriminate. Um, Good. <laughs> but so honestly... So the, the more you get out and see the abundance of wildlife in Florida, it's like falling in love over and over and over wow. again. Oh, I love this plant. This is my favorite plant. Sure. <laughs> Until you see another one. And, yeah. then, <laughs> and the, more you, the more you see, the more you experience, the more you learn about just the incredible, uh, and the way plants communicate, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that alone is just mind blowing. And it, I, you can't love any one thing. You just fall in love over and over and over again. Hmm. And just the more you learn and the more you understand, the more you're amazed at the complexity of, you know, these interactions between plants and insects and animals and soil microorganisms and you name it. It's, it's awesome. And it's mind boggling. <laughs> and, I, you know, I know, I know a lot of researchers who, who always say, the more we learn, the more we learn that we don't know as much, <laughs> nearly as much as we should. Uh, and, and will we ever fully understand it? That's how complex it is. Yeah. And that's a, such a wonderful sentiment to drive home. And I, I, I love that answer. <laughs> it's such a satisfying answer to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's, that's how I feel. Well, I think you're in a perfect position, and I think you're doing extremely important work. And I, I hope uh, you know you and the Florida Native Plant Society keep it up for for generations to come. Thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you, and we will keep it up. Fantastic. Well, you have yourself a great day, and uh, get out there and get botanizing. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Matt. Yep. Cheers. Have a good one. All right. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you will all consider checking out the Florida Native Plant Society. They're all over social media. And if you're in the Florida area, do consider going to their annual conference. I thank Juliet for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to us. And again, her and her colleagues at the Florida Native Plant Society, as well as all of the volunteers that get involved, are doing great things to protect Florida's plant diversity. So that does it for this week. Thank you all for listening. I'm sorry I had to come with uh, such bad news, but Mark would want us to get out there, go botanizing, celebrate plants, but most importantly, protect plants wherever possible. As always, we've got a ton of great stuff on the horizon, so many great interviews coming up, and uh, stay on top of it all, make sure you're hitting that subscribe button. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.